Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I really appreciate you tuning back in. Today's subject matter deals with urban planning and the pandemic. You could say it's the real pandemic discussion we should be having, and it really deals with how cities are responding to the pandemic, how urban planning will be affected by current needs and future needs in terms of public health, infrastructure, and social social distancing requirements. And for that, I bring on our guest, who uh, is a historian. He's a Toronto historian on urban planning. He's also a uh, lecturer at the University of Toronto Mississauga for Canadian history. And he's also the author of a book called Planning Toronto, which is an analysis of urban planning in Toronto that led it to becoming a world-class city. His name is Richard White, and I welcome Richard to the program today. Day. Richard. Okay, thank you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, about what uh, attracted to you to the subject matter. Okay, well, um, I guess first of all, first off, I should say that I am a historian. And um, it's interesting how historians are often called upon to uh, to tell us about the future. Yeah, the, the, the crystal ball holders. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There was an interesting uh, piece in the New York Times last weekend written by some guy who was a historian of literature. He was saying that everyone's asking him these days what the future is going to be, and he doesn't know. And he was saying that, in fact, nobody knows, and this is all kind of strange that we're all trying to predict it. Right. Well, I mean, but, it taps into the anxiety about what what's going to happen, what is going to happen, right? So uh, there's a lot of interest in, you know, I guess, us soothsayers, so to speak. Well, the, the, we can learn from history. I mean, this is well known. Right. Uh, history does not always repeat itself. In fact, it usually doesn't. But if we look at past comparable experiences, we can learn certain things from them. But anyway, that was my, that's my academic field. And um, I wasn't always interested in cities or in planning. I uh, did my PhD in fairly standard Canadian history, and I taught for a number of years the usual uh, Canadian history topics. But um, I started developing an interest in planning history about 10 or 15 years ago. Internationally, at first, actually, I didn't uh, pay much attention to it in Toronto. Uh, it's a very rich and fascinating field, the way that um, basically it's 20th century or from sort of mid-19th century on, how this idea that cities can be shaped by some sort of administrative or political force. And um, it just seems to, it seemed to embody to me a lot of other aspects of the 19th and 20th century intellectually. So I got quite deep into it, and then I settled into a study of the history of Toronto's planning and spent a number of years um, researching and writing that book called Planning Toronto. Um, so that's, uh, that's where I'm at now. And I do, uh, I've actually recently stopped teaching standard Canadian history, and I now only teach the history of planning. <laughs> but um, so I have migrated fully into the realm of uh, urbanism, as people say, but I have never been a planner. Uh, I have no training in planning. Uh, I mean, I've always been kind of interested in it, but um, I've, I know planners and I, I've learned things from them. And when you do the history of anything, I guess there's one other thing I might say here. When you do the history of anything, you have to learn something about that anything. And, uh, you know, if you do the history of divinity, you have to learn about divinity. If you do the yeah, history true. of factory work, you got to learn about factory work. So I have learned something about planning, but um, it's only really from the perspective of a historian. Yeah, and same here. I have some um, experience dealing with planning and 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 those in urban planning, and I, and even in my circles, there is a lot of urban interest in urban planning, especially in Toronto. I mean, I think there's almost a renewed 
uh, interest in it, and that's where the term urbanism comes from as a, a field of study and a field of interest, even just casually. And I think that's a good energy for any growing city to have people having that interest in it. Um, so go- going to this topic today, obviously there are shifts happening all over the world where cities are trying to respond to the needs of this pandemic. Um, and obviously that's going to affect maybe the orthodoxy or the ethics or sorry, the, the, the psychology even of, of urban planners going forward and how they craft the city and how they allow a city to grow or even shrink in some examples um, to address the current public health crisis and maybe perhaps future ones, how much of uh, urban planning right now accounts or includes public health as um, um, adjusts for public health needs? Um, do you know or are there examples in the past where uh, public specific public health needs have shifted the trajectory of urban planning uh, orthodoxy. Well, I, um, I'm I'm afraid I really it's a good question about what's happening now, and I'm afraid I just don't know. My sense is that um, urban planning and public health are fairly separate from one another. I mean, they admi- administratively are separate. I mean, the city of Toronto has a public health department and it has a planning department, and um, that doesn't always mean there's a there's not interaction because sometimes um, you know the two in administrative bodies meet one another on a regular basis yep. but um, I think that probably really since the 1950s or so at least I think that those two professional fields have been on different tracks I, I think um, maybe the reason for that is well I guess this gets to another point that I do know a little bit more about and that is where this all began because public health concerns in cities were definitely one of the contributing factors to the genesis of urban planning in the 1890s or so. Um, There were a number of other factors. It was certainly not the only one. Uh, The general picture of this, from the sort of textbooky histories of planning, is that um, sanitary reform is what they call it, the introduction usually of sewers and properly piped clean water was, um, which was a very expensive thing for cities in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. That was one of the contributing um, streams <laughs> into urban planning. But there were aesthetic concerns as well, people who wanted to make cities look better. Uh, there were sort of social concerns, people who wanted housing to be improved for lower-income people. And that was a political movement closely connected to 19th century socialism. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of uh, tributaries that went into the genesis of urban planning, but one of them was public health in the sense that there were communicable diseases present in the high density, overcrowded areas of cities. And um, the authorities, the public health authorities wanted to fix that. And that played right into the need to plan a better, more ideal city. So that's, um, that's the connection present in the late 19th century. But I think, um, you know, by the post-World War II years, there were not so many communicable diseases. There was not so much of a threat. There were some. Polio was a major one. But still, it just doesn't seem to have affected the the conception of planning and and city administration as much in the the last couple of generations as it did in the early 20th century. 
So the the concept of density is in urban planning is one that's held high as a goal for cities. Uh, the greater the density, the more efficient you can deliver public services, um, like transit um, and other other types of infrastructure. Uh, and it's always always been seen through the lens of never through never through the lens of it being a um, uh, something that puts the public at risk. Like it can be as a you know a uh, a force multiplier in the spread of disease. Do you do you what was that always a was density always considered a virtue in urban planning or were there efforts to uh, spread things out a little bit more? I mean we see the sprawl of the uh, in in Toronto that emerged post war. Um, was density always seen in the light that it, that it is now in urban planning circles, or were there efforts, were the, were there differing schools of thought in that matter? Well, that's a question that has a very straightforward answer, and the answer is no. <laughs> density has not always been highly valued. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, the high density is we like the the word density wasn't used in the early twentieth century. It was called overcrowding. <laughs> Uh, and um, it was overcrowding. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't. So it's been rebranded in sense. Well, in a yeah, I guess so. But I think there is actually a substantive difference because in the, the what they were the public health authorities were seeing in 1900 in a city like Toronto, and in larger cities in Europe and the United States even more, is multiple families in one unit. Mm-hmm. That was the problem. And so uh, the density of the, the buildings, like the amount of s- square footage in each unit or the amount of wasted space between them or whatever, that wasn't the issue. The issue was the number of people per unit. And that's what they measured. So they have maps of cities like Toronto that measured the places in the city where there were multiple families in one dwelling. So that was what, um, and that of course, and I might say, just to jump ahead for a second, no problem. that is exactly what we're facing now. But anyway, we'll get back to that. And um, that's what the um, public health authorities did not want. Yeah. So their opposition to overcrowding was not quite the same thing as opposition to density. It isn't just a word difference. I think that most urban building in the late 19th, early 20th century was dense by our standards. If you see photographs of residential areas in the city of Toronto in 1900, they're all dense. Mm-hmm. The, um, the older neighborhoods, uh, um, you know, like High Park or the Annex or the beaches, I mean, it's buildings are lot, lot line to lot line, as they say. Right. Uh, it's very dense. And a neighborhood like the beaches, which I've been researching recent years, it had virtually no public space designated within it. The plans of subdivision for the residential areas were just lot after lot after lot. Hmm. So they were dense, and no one had any any opposition to that. It was the idea of multiple pe- people, multiple families living in one small unit that was the, uh, the problem. So, in in terms of that, the you touched a bit on this in some of your comments in uh, articles as of late, how there was a, a, a racist and almost classist component to that as well. In that, you know people who were living in multi-generational households could have potentially been new immigrants or, or, or new residents in the city? I don't know that I touched on that. Um, a lot of people touch on it. Um, 
Well, the thing is, I mean, we, if we get into the details of this, um, in early 20th century Toronto, there was not much uh, racial di- diversity. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the poor were the problem. They yeah. were not non-white people. And, um, and even the recent poor immigrants, from, who they're all Europeans, or, you know, all 99% were European immigrants. So there was not a question of Asians or, or Blacks or South Asians of any sort. So, so there, was, there was prejudice, but it was not racist because there was no opportunity for it. It was kind of culturist, I guess. There was opposition to some of the Irish, but that was because they were Catholic. So there was uh, bigotry towards different, different religions. Right. But um, I mean, sure, the people who lived in these uh, these bad conditions, they were poor, but they weren't necessarily immigrants. I mean, there were people from the countryside who were, didn't have the education, and they were working in factories too. Right. It was low income, insecure jobs, inability to pay for an entire flat for your family, so you needed to double up. But I don't know that anyone has really shown that the immigrants were predominantly the poor in the early 20th century Toronto. There were lots of old stock Canadians who were poor as well. Right. So one would have to look at this a bit more closely. I understand. And speaking of, you know, class-based issues, uh, I mentioned this earlier today in in kind of our our pre-interview that the Huffington Post uh, put out an article today that said, there is a surge in interest in people moving permanently, wealthy, wealthy people moving permanently to the outer areas, um, specifically in Muskoka, um, specifically because of the city and what it represents in terms of the spreadability of this disease. People are rethinking about where they permanently reside, especially people with money and means, um, which may pose an idea or may introduce an idea of capital flight out of a city, do you think that is just an anomaly or is there a potential for people to rethink the way they are they exist in a city, whether they be employers or, or, or people with means to leave the city? Um, and how does that translate into future growth for the, not just Toronto, but the GTA and the GTHA in terms of perhaps a new wave of suburban sprawl? Um, well, I mean, so we're, we're jumping right up to the present. Uh, and um, I did have a, uh, I was just thinking there as you were asking that question that um, I wonder what the historical precedents for this sort of thing are. Interestingly, I don't remember reading anything about this, but, um, you know, there were parts of the city of Toronto, say, and certainly even more so in Montreal or New York, where there were poor people and they were they had a lot of these communicable diseases. But I don't recall ever seeing, in, in case of Toronto, it would be what we now refer to as the ward, primarily around where the new city hall is, mm-hmm. a um, Dundas kind of area. Um, there were people with a lot of money that lived in the annex, which is you know less than a mile away, and I don't ever recall anyone describing moving out of the city to get away from these. If you stayed out of the neighborhoods and you stayed out of the houses, I mean, house individual houses could be quarantined. This was right. done until the 1950s, as I recall, and um, you'd stay out of those houses. <laughs> um, 
but I don't recall there being a flight out of the city because of communicable diseases. Now, the people who are historians of communicable, communicable diseases might be able to correct me on that. Right. But I have not seen that referred to. Um, so anyway, um, as for now, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that um, we need more research on on the connection between high density residential development or rent residential living and the presence of prevalence of the disease. I mean, I, you probably have the map that the public health office put out yesterday yeah. showing the number of, dis, of uh, infections per neighborhood in the city of Toronto. And it identifies like all 70 or 80 or whatever of the city's neighborhoods. And it tells you the number of diseases, number of, of confirmed infections of COVID-19 that have occurred in each one. And for those watching and listening, I'll link to that in the discussion notes below. Okay, Sorry. good. Yeah. But, you know, um, the high, high incidents are in high-density areas, but all the high-density areas are not, they don't have a lot of incidents. Like, it's not the density which is causing it. It's the conditions that the people are living in. And from what I can see, and I'm just inferring here from the data, has a lot to do with employment too, where people are working and the kind of jobs they have. So a number of, uh, of people have had to continue working in high risk environments. And um, so anyway, the, the actual cause of the disease of the infections and the transmission, you know, there's the jury's still out on exactly what the connection is between high density residential and the prevalence of the disease. And so I don't know that people are making an informed decision if they right. really are moving out. But, you know, I don't know. But given that a lot of the, you know, they're, they're obviously market drivers are, are are based on economic fundamentals and things like that, but there's a psychological component there where who knows if, you know, a year or two down the line, there are pressures to open up more, uh, areas for suburban sprawl as people want more space and more distance from their neighbors. Do you see that as being a second or third order effect of what's happening right now? Well, you know, I don't see that. And everybody else seems to see it, and maybe everyone else is right. <laughs> I don't take my own opinion too seriously. But um, I just don't see it. I mean, I don't know. I guess one of the things that could affect this, like I've been a person who's used downtown for pretty much all my life in the city of Toronto. I go to movies and concerts and plays and stuff. And if those events are not going to happen, it's going to make living downtown less appealing. Yeah. One of the things that's good about living in uh, you know, condominiumite downtown is you can go to a Raptors game or you can go to the, the, the Bell light box or whatever. And if there's nothing happening in the ACC or if there's, you know, I, so, but the, these are, these are short term situations, right? Like this is the thing we have to distinguish between the, the next six months or even the next 12 months right. and the next five or 10 years. I, I don't. I think that somehow or other the Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment is going to figure out a way <laughs> to sell tickets to Leafs and Raptors games. There's too much on the table for sure <laughs> yeah. for them to leave behind. They will create mini bubbles if they need to on every, every seat that yeah. people somehow hollow. I don't know. Transport Star Trek style into. 
just as long as they get those bums in those seats, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, so that, in the long term, I don't, I don't see how that could be a, a deterrent to high density living. But I, I just, I mean, the other thing, look at it this way: there's already a pretty substantial demand for suburban sprawl. Yeah. I mean, that's where affordable housing is on the uh, on the periphery. Mm-hmm. And um, there's been it's been that way forever. And the province of Ontario, uh, you know, doles out the land. Um, block by block, or you know, and um, have the province of Ontario has been controlling sprawl in the Toronto region since the 1950s, and that's why we have a fairly dense urban carpet in the GTA. We don't yeah. have isolated pockets of development because the province has been controlling that. But there's constantly, just about constantly, been pressure to expand that urban boundary. And even so as of I late, know, yeah. I don't know if it's going to get an, get stronger i don't know if um, well i mean some uh, p- politicians will be politicians they might use this opportunity to say we need more housing we need more sprawl we need to open up there were efforts even in the last few years to open up the yellow belt the farmlands uh just outside of uh of, of the suburban ring and uh even before the green belt uh, to more development, and there have been pressures even in the last years to to have that happen. So right. we don't we don't know how people will explore or pol- political forces will exploit this um, this this health crisis in order to push agendas. Well, I guess so, but I mean, as you say, the pressure's there already. Yeah. Um, I I think that there's a pretty strong desire to live in the in the old city. Of Toronto, and I think that uh, the price of houses in places like Riverdale and the Annex and High Park and so on reflect that. I mean, that's those prices; those houses are more expensive than houses in the periphery, way more, and that reflects the demand, the desire. And I, I guess I just don't know enough to honestly be able to predict that there's going to be a major shift in that. Yeah, it's it's, it's anybody's guess, I guess. But um, and in the similar vein, I know it's not in your wheelhouse. Of expertise, but these are just interesting things that are currently happening uh, that might have a lasting effect on city life and this and the city's vibrancy. And so, I'm very curious as to what you think about um, things like how people right now and companies and corporations and large businesses um, are encouraging their employees to work from home and seeing perhaps that there's an alternative to coming into an office space. Now, one only needs to look at our skyline to see how important the um, financial district is not only to our urban space, but our economic health, uh, given the commercial taxes that are levied from there. And if companies start to rethink the value of having these large buildings in the center of a city um, and the cost-benefit analysis of that, they start rethinking that and the financial district becomes, you know, uh, non-existent or changing. What does that look like for uh, a city's health or a city's vibrancy? And that might be a more permanent effect given that, you know, people's productivity can be quantifiable even in a pandemic. Um, if they're working from home versus them working in the office. What are your thoughts on that? Um, my thoughts are that it does seem possible. <laughs> I mean, I can see all the logic behind that. I think that, um, you know, I've got uh, 
I mean, my own personal experience is a little bit unorthodox because I've been working myself at home for years. But my neighbors, I've got two neighbors right beside me. They're, you know, a sort of middle-aged couple and they're both working at home now and they weren't working at home before. And um, it does seem possible that that's going to become semi-permanent. I, I, I don't know. I, I can see the logic behind that. I guess one thing I can say from history is that people have thought this before. <laughs> I think there was a feeling that um, the central city might sort of die in the 1960s. 50s really? And 60s. Well, with the suburbanization um, happening so rapidly, and um, there was a period in the, was it in the late 70s, I think, when a lot of big cities, the, the value, the demand for office space went really low. And there were a lot of parking lots in, uh, in American cities and quite a few parking lots in downtown Toronto. And a parking lot reflects low demand for office. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, what, uh, that's, that's the indicator of low demand for office, prevalence of the ground parking lots. So things have gone up and down in demand, but through some mysterious magic force, the, um, the inner city, the cores of cities have somehow or other lived through these, uh, these storms and they still, they still are the heart, you know, they still are the highest density source of, uh, of tax revenue, property tax, all this kind of stuff. So it does seem possible, but I have to say that, um, you know, people have feared this before and it hasn't happened. Is, is that a testament to the resiliency of, let's say, a city's cre- through, through creativity or adaptability? Um, um, a city's just innate uh, ability to adjust as need be. I mean, in Tr- Toronto City Council this week is meeting to implement a bunch of even temporary measures to encourage social distancing, to install temporary infrastructure for cycling, um, and a whole slew of other initiatives um, because they're adapting, they're trying to adapt quickly to the conditions at play. Is that just, is, is that baked into the cake of, of the way cities operate? Um, that they're just always able to survive? Cause there are examples of dead American cities or dying American cities, especially if you look at, you know, the, the mono economies of places like Detroit, um, where they, when an industry leaves, so does the, the ability for a city to function properly. Yeah, well, I mean, it's true. I mean, cities can die, and we do have to keep this in mind. But um, I think that cities are, you know, it's kind of the magic of cities in a way. They, they represent so much human endeavor of all sorts, at all levels, and um, they do have an amazing ability to to recover and to rebuild themselves. I don't know whether Detroit is ever going to rebuild itself. And there are administrative issues that, that can deter that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this curious thing of the United States, American cities, where they have diff- different tax bases for all their municipalities. So that if a factory leaves one jurisdiction, it, it uh, saps the tax revenue of that entire, we don't have that here. We spread our taxes around in cities, so um, we don't have vulnerable areas. It's an important difference, actually, between Canadian and American cities, and yeah. it allows our poor areas to get through the loss of major industries without um, such traumatic consequences. But um, anyway, I, I, I would say, yeah, that uh, cities do have a remarkable ability to uh, get through things. But, you know, having said that, 
cities can die and major cities can disappear. And um, so we, we cannot, we should not always be totally confident that that's not going to happen in our world. And I'm sorry to ask you to hold the crystal ball once again, but uh, it's, it's, it's something that I'm still curious about. What do you see the city of Toronto looking like in five years? Um, in a post-pandemic situation, perhaps there's a vaccine, perhaps a vaccine is not found, and we have to create some level of permanency to our social distancing um, and planning initiatives around this. What do, you, what do you see Toronto looking like in five years? Well, I really, um, I'll tell you what I fear. And I, I fear for the small businesses. I was um, on the Queen Streetcar for the first time in a couple of months yesterday, mm-hmm. going to and from downtown. And um, there's a lot of businesses that are shut down, small businesses along Queen Street. And I just don't know how these small businesses are going to get through. Like, I don't, I don't understand the ins and outs of the way the governments are trying to sustain these businesses through various grants and commercial rent relief and so on. Yeah. But um, these things are so in- they're integral to the city and we have shut them down through the public policies we've put in place. I hope it was necessary. <laughs> I hope the consequences are not going to be permanent, but there's it's a big such, job yeah. to do. It's such a complicated issue, and that issue specifically we addressed in a previous episode. I believe it's episode two or three with Christopher Hudspeth. He's basically a restaurant owner at Pegasus Toronto, and he led an initiative to get the provincial and federal governments to adjust their rent subsidy program that they initiated because there was no uptake. Uh, Essentially, 80 or 90% of businesses we're going to be able to benefit from it and we're coming up to June 1st now and we're going to see another wave of businesses close and it's nothing has changed still nothing has changed in the rent subsidy program and i i have the exact same fears which is why we dedicated a good amount of energy to discussing that issue i'm going to link that in the show notes below for anyone who's curious to to listen in on that and you bring up an excellent point a lot of our vibrancy in Toronto is street level. It is what attracts people. Walkability scores have been a sales pitch point for a lot of real estate and uh, housing markets within the downtown core. The ability to bike to and from uh, the places you love to visit on a daily basis is is a, is a huge benefit in terms of living in a downtown space. Now, if Main Street is just going to be a a uh, combination of uh, boarded up windows and big box stores it's essentially it's a new kind of urban blight if you if you were to if you were to even call it that so i, I agree with you on that one any other fears that you that you have uh in, in along this along similar lines well i think that um that if 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 that uh and i might say you know one thing about this that i look upon as a historian is that this kind of um, deliberate policy shutdown of, um, you know, literally thousands of businesses. There's no historical precedent for this. Yeah, this has never been done before. Like there were businesses that have died in economic recessions, but these weren't legislated. <laughs> 
And so I think we really just don't know what um, will happen next. So, you know, a lot of this, uh, this, this COVID-19 crisis is so historically unprecedented. I mean, they just, um, you just they, we just can't look for things in the past. Um, so anyway, I think this is one. But I guess if that were to happen, I think that that would be a major contributor to the loss of value of inner city living. Yeah. Because if the coffee shops and the restaurants and the little hardware stores and stuff are not there, there's less reason to live. So the two things could go together, a general decline in the livability and therefore the appeal of residential areas and the decline of of cities. And, you know, the, the public transit as well. I mean, it's, um, I don't know what the what the city's going to do about that but yeah they've already reduced service on yeah. on the TTC in order to respond because of i would assume there are some budgetary pressures that are emerging emerging and i oh, think yeah. they were they're going to be at a 50% shortfall i can't even, i can't remember the numbers so don't quote me on it no, uh, no, but I, but people I can't can look it up yeah but the numbers have been made public yeah yeah and that's that's a huge thing a lot of um you know, I believe it's two thirds of uh, the budget for for Toronto's transit comes from the fare box, and people people aren't taking it. That is, it basically disrupts the whole year's planning in terms of its service. So there are huge, huge adjustments that are happening in real time that we won't see the effects of for at least a year or two. And I don't want to end it on that depressing note. And I wanna I wanna have. Uh, and, and a, a hopeful idea for the future. Well, actually, there was um, there was another point that um, we, we never we didn't pursue, and that was uh, about density. Yeah. I don't know if you want to spend a minute or two. Absolutely. On that. Let's go down that okay. road. Because what I did say was that density, uh, at least in the form of overcrowding, was something that um, urban reformers of all sorts, including planners, wanted to get rid of or at least lessen in the early twentieth century. And that sort of remained loosely the orthodoxy till after the Second World War. And after the Second World War, that started to shift. And this is one of the, I think, most important contributions that Jane Jacobs made to the change of thought of cities. She advocated for density. And um, she knew that it was totally unorthodox and that she was gonna be abused and raked over the coals for making such a ridiculous assertion. Because Mm -hmm. in the 1950s, and this is something we often forget about Jane Jacobs. Her ideas about cities were formed in the 1950s. <laughs> so they're out of date in many ways. But um, anyway, she, at the time, high density was still correlated with disease and crime. And, um, and I think that was you know, probably empirically true. Um, whether it was caused by that or just correlated with it is another matter. But in any case, by coming out in favor of high-density environments, uh, she was a real unorthodox character. And um, she wasn't the only one by any means, because a lot of old European cities had high-density areas that functioned very well. And this became more widely recognized. And so by the late 1960s, density had become desirable. And... um, what was her what was her what was the driving factor for her in terms of encouraging density as something to strive for in urban planning? She Did walked she... around and looked at it. Yeah. She saw it. That was the basis. <laughs> That's of simply, her. yeah. Yeah. She walked through neighborhoods in Boston and, and in, in New York City. And she observed that um, in high density areas people kids were playing on the street, uh, people were socializing informally at the, on their front stoops. There was a way more um, small business. There were bakeries and 
and uh, restaurants and stuff because there were so many people in the area. I mean, this is this is now a truism: the, the higher the density, the more the bakeries. <laughs> but um, so she made that observation based on on what she saw. Now the knock on her has always been that she walked around to areas that were reasonably healthy, and that's true. There were high density areas in American cities that she didn't ever go to, and when people reminded her of them, she ignored them. <laughs> But nevertheless, um, that was her modus, uh, that was her research technique was to walk and think and, um, and argue very uh, persuasively in her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Um, so anyway, yeah, that um, shifted things. So in the city of Toronto, we start to see, um, I mean, a neighborhood like St. Lawrence neighborhood, uh, which was built in the, in the 1970s is, you know, that's density, and that's what planners wanted. So by that, the fact that that building, that complex exists is an indication that planners wanted density by then. But um, it was comparatively new. So there was a shift. What, what was so, the shift away from at that point? I believe uh, my, my planning understanding is very, very rudimentary and uh, rusty, I would say, but it was... Was that high modernist kind of style, was that in, vo in vogue during that period or wh well, what was it? It's complicated, as they say. I mean, high modernist was in a way uh, sort of almost the forerunner of this stuff because the, there was high density. We, the real high modernists built these uh, towers in the park, right? They went up 50 stories. They wanted space around the buildings for light and air to move through. But um, I don't know if it's modernism per se. It was just a sense that, um, you know, people need air and space and, and, and it's sort of better for them. It's healthier. And if you can afford it, you want to have a yard around your house and you right. don't want to be cramped in your space. You want to have freedom of movement. And so with affluence, with, po with post-war affluence, this ideal of this sort of prairie style of house on the yard with open space around, as a, it's a kind of modernism. It's a variant of modernism. It sort of comes from Frank Lloyd Wright and other people of that ilk in the 30s and 40s. But anyway, that was what was that was the understanding of the ideal urban residence was a low density area where you and you still have this mindset. You know, people love they 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 dream of having an acreage yeah. that they can cut their grass on a little tractor, mm -hmm. and um, that is still an ideal living environment for many people. And it was, um, it has now, however, been countered by this other view that uh, um, a stacked townhouse with a bakery down the street is actually a better residential environment than a, an acreage that you can drive around on a tractor. So we have those two different ideals now, but the latter, the, um, the higher density one, started gaining ground through the 60s and 70s in response to the, the standard suburban house on a lot with lots of open space on a wide street lots of place to park uh, people were driving so we need to have parking lots in front of the shops so there were a number of forces that were lowering density in the 19 in the post-war years hmm. and so i guess we we see all the effects of that especially in post the post-war infrastructure in toronto uh where kind of the other outer suburbs have a lot of towers in the park uh, they have a lot of low-density um, suburban homes, um, and uh, everything's kind of very grid-aligned. The subdivision kind of model versus the main street model was very much encouraged. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I was very glad. I'm very glad to see that there is a resurgence in this kind of attitude of urbanism in Toronto, uh, of which you're an advocate of, I, I assume, living down downtown-ish, um, and you see the virtues of. I mean, the beaches, uh, don't mean to call you out where you live, but uh, I believe you mentioned it earlier, but uh, the beach is a beautiful example of, you know, the, the, the main street um, environment. Yeah, I guess. Um, we, won't, we won't get into that. <laughs> I live in the beaches, it's true. I, I can't say that it's my favorite neighborhood in the city, but um, it has its appeal. Mm-hmm. But one thing I was just going to jump in there on was that one of the things that's unique about Toronto um, is the prevalence of apartment buildings in the suburbs. This is something that people have picked up on more and more in the last five or ten years. And these were planned. Yep. So although it's true that the, the post-war suburbs of Toronto are an example of these uh, single houses on, on substantial lots, they are also an indication of townhouses and high-rises. And I've done some research on this and gone around and photographed them all. And um, it's a surprising number of these high-density areas. And this is what the planners wanted. So the planners were not all of one mind in advocating low-density suburban development. Planners, even in the 50s, had a, a broader view of, uh, of what worked in cities than that. It's it's interesting because you can even see some very unique uh, architecture out there. I know there's some buildings in North York that look almost like some of the ones down in the annex, you know, the big gull wing kind of side. I don't know what they're called, but the yeah, yeah. Uno Pre buildings. He was a famous, I guess, architect or I don't know what he was, but he was a famous architect back, back then and people stole his designs all over the place. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's almost like a weird time capsule going out there and, and seeing what people were thinking at that time. Mm -hmm. But I think it is important for us to, to recognize this has sort of been one of my hobby horses for years. And I wrote about this in the book planning Toronto is that the planners of the 1950s were not all advocates of, uh, what we consider to be post-war suburban sprawl Mm -hmm. planners back then, uh, were aware of the value of social mixing, diversity, and uh, multifamily buildings. And that is often lost sight of when we criticize the post-war planners for promoting suburbia in the uh, outside the peripheries of cities in the 1950s. And a new thing that we're experiencing now, even with the towers in the park, we're starting to see infill housing starting to occupy some of that underused green space um, being put there. Yeah, the park is the problem. People don't mind the towers, but they, it's the park they were put in. That's what everyone doesn't like. Yeah. What are your thoughts on infill housing? Yeah, if there's room for it, but there's not always room for it. But the thing is that some of the ones that were built without the park around them, and then St. Jamestown in Toronto is a good example of this, because a couple of buildings were built without a park around them. And they were, I have tracked this through the archives. The city planner in charge of that did want more space. He was a great advocate in tower in the park design, and he wanted more space around the high rises, but he couldn't couldn't force it on the first few buildings. But I don't think that we really love the the uh, excessive density of St. Jamestown either. So mm-hmm. I think that um, putting a bit of park in around the towers isn't always a bad thing. But anyway, you got to look at each individual site, I guess. For sure, and. Richard, I, I would love, I would, I could spend hours discussing urban planning and, 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 and the future of it in Toronto. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take up m- much more of your time. Um, is there, is there any way if people want to get in touch with you, are there any w- ways to contact you directly? Do you have a social media presence or, uh, uh, just people can look you up online in, in order to get in touch? They can just look, look me up online. I do have, I, I, I had an active blog until a couple of years ago, but I sort of petered out like a lot of people. It was called Toronto Planning Historian, all one word. Nice. And uh, I was writing fairly substantial uh, sort of thousand word essays that I was posting up every couple of weeks. And I can be still, it's still alive. I can be contacted through that. But Great. I'm pretty easy to find um, through a Google search. Good. So maybe it's a time to maybe reboot the blog. Huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just finishing up another book, and um, I think maybe I'm going to start. So when you get, you need, especially the last half of writing a book, you're just totally immersed in it. It's yeah. just you can't think of other things. And um, so anyway, what not that I've ever here? written a book and can relate, but I can imagine. Uh, what's the book about? <laughs> well, it's a history of the beaches neighborhood. Oh, nice. Hence, hence your hesitation on commenting on uh, on the beaches. Well, no, it's just that um, the beaches neighborhood, everyone loves the beaches neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have critical things to say about the beaches neighborhood. And so I don't know what the beaches, the beaches neighborhood lovers are going to think about a book that is the history of the neighborhood that doesn't express um, un, undiluted love for the neighborhood. I, I think there are a number of problems with this neighborhood that are... Um, interesting and they're explainable and i do that's what i do i sort of explain how it all came about excellent but that's and, that's a year or so from being out because the publisher uh, has to review everything and it's going to be an academic press that publishes it and they take forever yeah i see well a year from now that may be great timing for you to come back on and hopefully the name of this show will change and uh we'll be in in better in better times and i would love to explore that topic with you um because i do plan to keep a uh, program going on Toronto and the ebbs and flows of the city because it's a, it is a city that I love. I've, I've visited a bunch of cities around the world and Toronto still still feels like home to me and still feels like the best combination of a lot of things that cities have to offer. Richard, I really appreciate you coming on the program and spending some time with us on this topic. And uh, and I, I wish you the best. I wish you um, uh, safety and security uh, going forward. And I wish you good luck on your book. Okay, well, thanks. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And everyone, you can tune in. Again, I want to remind you, you can subscribe to this on audio as well. If you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook or wherever else, or even on the Pod6 website, you can subscribe to this on audio. All you do is search Google for Pod6, P-O-D-6-I-X, and the anchor link in the RSS feed will come up, or just look at it in your podcatcher if you're already a uh, aficionado of podcasts and you listen to them often Um, as well if you have any info or questions or concerns or even have a good suggestion for a future show uh, you can email us info at pod6.com pod6ix.com and you can get in touch with us directly there thank you and we'll see you in the next one